Good morning. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're not far from where we were last week, just a few verses later. <clears throat> and look at the disciples on the road to Emmaus. <clears throat> For continuity, we're going to start reading in the first verse of Luke 24. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, I love this. What things? (laughs) So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been, huh? Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would go on farther. 
But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now, it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Do you love the word of God? Man, I love the word of God. Seems like every time I'm preaching, I'm preaching on my favorite passage. This is certainly one of them. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, loving the word of God. Knowing the word of God. Believing the word of God. Doing the word of God. Well, uh, it's an unsettled time in the life of the disciples. We're after the crucifixion. Actually, we're after the resurrection. So it should be a time of joy. But it's not. The disciples are confused. They're sad. They're puzzled. They don't know what to do or what to think. It's interesting that um, the, the women came and told them exactly what the angel said, but they didn't believe it. Now, we have to be uh, careful not to be too hard on the disciples because uh, they have to believe that Jesus died and is alive again. And so, you know, you can, you can cut them a little slack by seeing that it's a little tough for them to go all the way on that one. But they have no excuse. In fact, as you saw, Jesus does rebuke them for their unbelief. But uh, the angels were right when they said, don't you remember what he said? Just turn back a few pages to Luke 18. This is one of the many places where Jesus had told them what was going to happen. Very clearly. Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. It's pretty clear, huh? But... They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, the reason they were hidden was not because God was hiding it from them. They just didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to think that this one that they expected to be the king is going to die, and all of their hopes are going to be dashed. And so it's it's like um, whenever that subject comes up, they just block it out. You know, you think Christians ever do that sometimes with the scripture? You know, the comfortable stuff? Well, yeah, amen. You know, but the uncomfortable stuff, it's kind of like, yeah, no, that's not a memory verse, you know. It's interesting, verse 15, back here in chapter 24 now. In verse 15, as these two disciples are walking along, it says, so it was while they conversed and reasoned. They, they were reasoning. They, you can just see them trying to make sense of what's been going on. The problem is 
They're leaving certain pieces of the puzzle out. For example, what Jesus said was going to happen and what the prophet said as Jesus himself had just said. And so they can reason all they want, but as long as they leave some of the important stuff out, they're not going to come to the right conclusion. And that's why they're, they're troubled and sad. All they know is Jesus is dead. There are these crazy rumors about him, you know, being risen from the dead, but forget that stuff. You know, we can be like that. Like the disciples, we can focus on a problem or a trial and we can forget that God is in control. Just like these two disciples. Sometimes uh, I like to work jigsaw puzzles. Several of our family members like to do that. Uh, And every once in a while, we'll we'll get a really cool looking uh, puzzle at the thrift store and you get it home and it's like Swiss cheese. You know, it's got all these pieces missing in it. The disciples are like somebody trying to work a jigsaw puzzle where they don't even have the picture to begin with and more than half the pieces are gone. Okay? You're not going to be able to make sense of it. Their um, bafflement and their and their sadness is uh, very much like Elijah's, if you remember, when um, Jezebel threatened, she said, uh, she swore. You know, I'm going to kill Elijah. Poor Elijah hightailed it out. Of, this is right after the victory up, up on Mark, Mount Carmel. It's the way it often happens, isn't it? Big victory and then kaboom, splat, you know. And it's, it's classic stuff. I mean, he, he, he moans and says, Lord, it's enough. Just take my life. I'm ready to die. He prayed that God would, would take his life. And it's wonderful to see how God deals with his prophet in that situation. You see, Elijah had the same problem that the disciples did. You see, he expected things to go a certain way. He had these plans. I mean, look at Mark, Mount Carmel. You know, we're going to eradicate idolatry out of the land. Everybody's going to turn to God and it's going to be wonderful. And now here he is uh, on the point of being murdered by the queen. And so it doesn't make sense to him. And it's interesting when uh, God talks to him, he asks him a question, just like Jesus, by the way. Jesus is the great questioner. He never asks questions for information because he already knows the answer. He asks questions for our benefit. And so when he comes alongside, he says, uh, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk in our sand? Which being interpreted, we would say, what are you guys talking about? And he gets them to put it in their own words. Well, God, with Elijah, asked him twice. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? That's great. You see, Elijah, by his actions, was indicating that uh, there was something wrong. Things were out of control. Things weren't going the way he planned. God had made a mistake. By the way, you know, that's what we're implying when we when we get to that point, right? When we get to a point in our life where we say, Things are not right here. What we're really saying is, God, you blew it. And that's what Elijah was saying. And so uh, God was very gracious with Elijah, gave him some food. But if you look at that section, the two commands he gave to Elijah, one of them was arise, which which is literally get up. And the other was to go. 
Well, Jesus is confronted with a uh, similar situation here. The, the disciples had, had planned on things turning out a certain way. All of them had. And of course it was that Jesus was going to sit on the throne, right? In fact, the telltale words after he asks them that great question are in verse 21. They're probably the biggest words in their, in their long answer of what has happened. Verse 21. What do they say? But we were hoping. You understand? In other words, all this stuff has happened, but we expected it to go another way. There's something wrong here. And we can be like that sometimes, can't we? You know, make plans. Or we expect life to go a certain way. And instead it goes this way. And we go, but but I was expecting this. You know, and we look up at God and say, Lord, you made a mistake here. You know, I expected it to be like this, but I planned this. You know, I'm God number two. And really, uh, it's okay to be sad as Christians, by the way. We're not saying that. But if our depression gets to the point to where it's self-pity, and in particular, we're questioning God's love, wisdom, power, and goodness, well, now it becomes what? Sin. Okay. But we were hoping. <clears throat> this is the way it should have worked out. And th- that's going to be... <clears throat> the parallel with us, we, we can do the same thing that the disciples are doing. We can try to arrange our lives and expect it to turn out a certain way. In fact, sometimes we want something so badly that we can, we can kind of try to arrange things so that it does turn out that way. Sometimes God in his grace, in spite of all of that, <laughs> will bring about something else, you know, and that really throws us for a loop. Be careful about that. Well, verse, uh, 25, after they give their answer, Jesus is very gracious with them. He does rebuke them. There's no doubt about it. He said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. But in the midst of the confusion, he he zeroes in on the root of the problem. Their problem was, he said, not to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What he's saying, they took their Bible and they believed the stuff they wanted to believe, but then they rejected the other stuff. Okay? That's not good. When I do that, the Bible is now not the authority over me anymore. When I start editing the Bible, then I become the authority and the Bible is subject to me. And I go astray. And I have problems. And I get confused. And that's where they are. So he, he puts his finger on the on the on the problem that they have. They don't believe all the scripture. They're slow to believe it. They they believed all the scripture that talked about the Messiah in his glory ruling from Jerusalem over all the earth. But whenever it came to passages about the suffering of the Messiah, they no, no, that can't be right. No, that can't happen. That's what he that's what he means by that. We can do the same thing. Uh, 
some non-memory verses. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You don't see that on the navigator's packet of memory verses. You know, but it's true. Just as much as uh, Jesus saying, I came that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be careful about throwing out verses like that. Too many professing Christians go out of the way to try to fit into the world. And then when things go wrong and they can't figure it out, they're mystified. It's because they've thrown out part of the the word of God. Well, Jesus is going to help them out here. And uh, he does it in a wonderful way by, can you imagine, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, uh, as it says at the beginning here, we're not sure exactly where Emmaus was, but it seems that it was west of Jerusalem toward the Mediterranean Sea, about seven miles. And uh, we know that when they finished the conversation, it was toward evening, so let's say 5 or 6 p.m., they may well have started in the morning. So this was a lesson anywhere from four to eight hours of Jesus just going through the Bible. Because it says he, he, he opened up all of the scriptures concerning himself. Do you know how much that is? You know, Jesus uh, told the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And they are they which speak of me. That's what the Bible's all about. What a lesson that must have been. You see, but he helped them understand and and have the right point of view by going to the scriptures and talking about all the passages that they had thrown out. You see, that was the key. I've always wanted to do this. And so uh, I'm just going to take a few minutes and 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 kind of try to give a quick recreation of what that lesson must have been. It's going to be very brief, just a few minutes. But uh, we know enough about the scripture to uh, look at certain passages that clearly indicate in the Old Testament the, the death or the suffering of the Messiah that were there for them to see. Either uh, prophecies or, or types or uh, pictures. And so we're going to do like Jesus. And we're going to begin with Moses. So I think most of you probably could uh, get most of these, but um, he probably would have begun in Genesis 3.15. A prophecy where God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In its setting, it must have sounded awfully strange, and I wonder how much these guys thought about it. But it's, it's really clear now that we uh, understand what it means. The, the seed of the woman is, yeah, Jesus, the Messiah. And, of course, the serpent is the devil. And there's going to be uh, some injuries taking place here, according to God. The, the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the Messiah. In other words, it's not a fatal wound, 
but the Messiah is going to crush his head. It's fatal. And that's exactly what the Messiah did. That's what Jesus did on the cross. I think he probably would have started there with them. And I could just see them going, oh, wow. You know, that's cool. I didn't realize that. Makes sense. You know. Uh, Next, God made for Adam and his wife tunics of skin and clothed them. The first blood shed in the Bible was by God himself to clothe uh, the, the first man and woman. Another picture of the blood that Jesus would shed on the cross so that we could be robed in the righteousness of God. Uh, maybe they had wondered before why God was so unfair to Cain in only accepting Abel's offering. Well, Jesus explained it to them. Abel brought a sacrifice from his flocks and herds. That is a sacrifice of blood. And Cain's was bloodless. Well, what's the difference? <laughs> the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, it says in Hebrews 9. He would explain that to them. You know, they go, oh, that's why. Now I understand. The Ark of Noah, probably the next subject. Beautiful picture of Christ suffering on the cross. That, that boat endured the judgment of God while everybody inside the boat was safe from the judgment of God. Beautiful picture of Christ suffering the judgment of God so that we could be saved. Isn't that beautiful? So simple. I can just see them going, wow, I never thought about that before. Uh, probably the next, the offering of Isaac. You know? Uh, you know God. You know he hates child sacrifice. Why on earth would he ask Abraham to offer up his son? You know, maybe they wondered at that. They knew that God hated Molech, the, the idol that they offered, the Canaanites offered their children to. Listen to the parallels that I'm sure the Lord Jesus would have uh, expounded to them. The father was told to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and offer him there on one of the mountains. Twice, uh, that wonderful phrase is repeated. It's so insignificant and yet so meaningful. It says the two of them, that is the father and the son, the two of them went on together. Beautiful picture of the cross and the aspect that there are elements of the cross that you and I, even as believers, just we can't enter into. It was a transaction between the father and the son that we will never fully appreciate or understand. Only the father really appreciates what the son was doing. And only the son could love the father and offer himself up without reserve the way he did. The two of them went on together. And then, of course, um, uh, Abraham's classic words when um, Isaac said, you know, where's the offering? And uh, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Isn't that great? You know, and and when Jesus is done explaining this, they go, wow. You know. Now, remember, you've got to keep remembering this. While Jesus is talking to them, they don't realize it's Jesus. Okay, so they're beginning to think, man, this guy really knows the Bible, you know, (laughs) 
Where's he been all this time? Maybe next he would have talked about uh, Joseph. As a person, Joseph is probably uh, the most thorough type of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, Some commentators have come up with more than 200 parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. But we're focusing here this morning just on the sufferings because that's what Jesus wanted to get across to them. That was the part they didn't get, you see. So just in the life of Joseph and a picture of Christ suffering, forget all the other stuff. Uh, think about this. He was loved by his father, hated by his brothers. He was sold for silver. He suffered unjustly. His death was figuratively portrayed by blood, which was presented to his father. He was figuratively resurrected and reunited with his brothers who thought he was dead. Isn't that cool? But then here's the capper at the at the end of Genesis. Now, uh, you remember the story. The brothers are all freaked out. Oh, man, you know, now that he's got us where he wants us, what's he going to do to us? Because, you know, they were the ones that had uh, given him up for dead. And um, Joseph says those immortal words. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Isn't that great? There's the cross, you see. We're beginning at Moses. We're not done. It's the first five books. And we're not going to be able to cover all of the passages, just some of them. But uh, if we move into Exodus now, the, the one that um, we, probably be, we would probably begin with would be the Passover lamb. How many parallels? Well, to protect themselves from the judgment of God, the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish, a young male. They had to observe the lamb for a time to make sure it was spotless before they offered it. Uh, They had to kill him, shedding his blood. None of his bones were to be broken. His blood was to be applied to the two doorposts and lintel, that's the cross piece in a door. Imagine a Jew standing back at that point and seeing the... And by the way, if I were told that it was the blood on my doorway that was going to spare me from the judgment of God that night, I don't think I would have just put a few drops on it, okay? They would have taken a branch of hyssop or something and it was painted generously up on the lintel and on the sides uh, on the doorpost, and so you can see the the lintel just pooling in in a in a pool down at the foot of the doorway. You got the picture. You're standing there as a Jew, and you see the blood here, here, and there. What's that look like? It's the cross, isn't it? With the blood in the the thorny uh, crown and the hands and the feet. And uh, God's words, of course, I will pass through the land that night and execute judgment. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Praise God. And again, you can just see the disciples going, wow, I thought it was just a holiday. You know. Have you had the blood of Christ applied to your heart? That's the only way, just like then, to escape the judgment of God. 
uh, along the way, there are several really strange incidents, you know, that uh, to the typical Jewish mind were kind of like, or even the Gentile mind, you know, you go, what? We've already talked about several of them. One of them would be the incident of the tree at the waters of Mara, right? They're thirsty. They're out of their wanderings, Exodus 15. And uh, they come to the place called Mara. And actually, it was called Mara after they got there because Mara means bitter. But the waters were bitter and they couldn't drink it. And so it says, Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. That's really strange. Until I'm sure Jesus would have said something like, just as the Christ suffered for our sins on the tree, he literally changed the bitter enmity that existed between ourselves and God into sweet fellowship. We, uh, we sing that song, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, Love drank it up and left but the love for me. That's a picture. That's a picture of Mara. Another strange one, Exodus 17, the incident of the rock. They're thirsty again. And uh, God says very carefully, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, that is the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And that sounds like a really roundabout way of getting water. But it's, it's deliberate, of course. Christ the rock, who, after he was struck on the cross, offers living water to all who come to him. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, he said to the woman at the well, will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Christ is that rock. Probably solved another mystery for them, too, by the way. You know, why did God get so upset with Moses when the second time they had a rock? And this time God said, don't strike it, just talk to it. And Moses was so upset, he took he hit it again. Well, we, we understand why God was so upset. How many times did Jesus suffer for our sins? Once. Go to the Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, and, and no, don't do it now, I'm sorry, but sometime, go through there and look for all the times it says once, 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 once. Christ suffered for sins once. Praise God. It's all done, it's finished. So Moses, by striking the rock twice, was indicating the Messiah would have to suffer twice, you see? And I could see the, again, the two guys going, wow, oh yeah, you know? Well, uh, next in Exodus, we're not talking about a verse. We're talking about chapters. It's the tabernacle. I love the tabernacle. Um, there are guys that, that make a, a full-time living just going around preaching on the tabernacle. I've done a two-week series here before. I, I'd like to do it again. But uh, I'll tell you, after two weeks, you've just scratched the surface of Christ. Everything in the tabernacle, right down to the sockets is bespeaking Christ. And so uh, I have a feeling that probably accounted for about an hour. It's so beautiful. Everything from the coverings, all the furnishings. 
But uh, certainly as far as the sufferings go, the bronze altar and the crimson thread and all the fabric talked about it. Man, wouldn't it be great to hear Jesus preach on the tabernacle of a picture of himself? Leviticus, oh boy. Just about the whole book, you know. Um, Certainly all the sacrifices. And again, we've done a series on Leviticus and and, uh, the offerings, the five offerings themselves is a beautiful sequential portrayal of the cross and the different aspects of it. Um, that, that I don't know. That probably another hour. A key verse in Leviticus would have been chapter 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood, God says, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And by the way, uh, I could just see Jesus speaking in such triumph and he can speak openly now that he was dying as a sacrifice for sins. It's accomplished. It's finished. It was veiled before the aspect of of paying for sins. But now uh, this is going to just open things wide open for these guys. He came to die, not just for their sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, Then the next book, Numbers 21, the fiery serpents. You know, the bronze serpent, another strange episode. Here are these snakes biting the people and killing them. And so I- instead of uh, coming up with a uh, snake repellent or something, you know, God tells Moses to make a fiery serpent himself and put it on a pole and hold it up. And when people look at it, they'd be healed. Jesus referred to that, you know, right at the beginning of his ministry, right after the wedding at Canaan, Cana, he uh Nicodemus came to him and you remember he said to Nicodemus just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up he's he's telling us there's a parallel there and I'm sure he would have explained it to them live the live fiery serpents picture our sin and its resulting sting of death bronze which is almost always a picture of judgment in the old testament The bronze fiery serpent on the pole pictures Christ's sin-bearing and suffering for us on the cross. When we look by faith to his work on the cross, we are saved. What a beautiful picture. Okay, uh, see, already we're running out of time, so I'll have to move along here. The Psalms, Psalm 22, uh, the whole thing is a picture of the cross a graphic portrayal of what it means to die by crucifixion, written 800 years before it was even invented, beginning with uh, his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly this psalm is going to have a whole new meaning now for these guys. Imagine Jesus talking about that psalm and requoting those words that he cried out in agony when he was on the cross. <clears throat> Psalm 16, Peter later uses this psalm in a sermon after his eyes are opened. You will not leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, a prediction of his resurrection. As Peter put it so forthfully, it was impossible for death to keep him. (laughs) The Son of God can't die and stay there. That's what he's saying. He had to be risen from the dead. The prophets, where would you turn first? Isaiah 53. 
every word. I made a note in my in my notes here. If I have time, read it. <laughs> I'd love to. Every word in Isaiah 53 comes alive. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Daniel 9, uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. Finally, we get toward the end of the prophets. We've skipped so much here. Zechariah 12 says, um, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Pierced as he was pierced on the cross. Well, uh, that's a human synopsis of what it must have been like for the disciples in those many hours of Jesus can you imagine opening all the scriptures concerning himself to them? But in particular, his suffering, which they had they had totally missed, even though Jesus himself had said that it was going to happen. And when he's done, as they say later, it says our hearts were burning. I love that. Our hearts were burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us along the way. <laughs> I love the way uh, it ends. Verse 28. So. After so many hours, uh, and you can't time it by saying, well, you, you, you walk two miles an hour. I don't think they were doing a brisk walk as Jesus is talking about this stuff, you know. I think every once in a while they take a few steps and then just kind of get arrested, you know, and stand there for a little bit listening. But anyway, when they get to the destination in Emmaus, I love this. It says, and they drew near to the village, verse 28, where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. Isn't that good? I could just see that, you know. Um, wait, no, you know. I want to hear some more. You know? They're not going to let him go. Uh, there's a note to you here, by the way, if you've been pushing Christ off in your life. Jesus is not going to force himself on you. Okay? He'll he'll come to you. He'll he'll knock on the door, but he's not going to force his way in. If you say, Jesus, I don't want you, he'll just he'll pass on. But remember that that's a life and death decision on your part. Not just life and death, eternal life and eternal death. Well, it says they constrained him and it wasn't because they knew it was Jesus. They still don't know it. It's because of what they he had done with the scriptures and just opening their eyes. And it wasn't until he broke the bread, it says that he became known to them in the breaking of bread. How many times have you learned something new about Jesus in the breaking of bread? You know, I wonder when it's all said and done, how much of the deep things of God can we trace back to the breaking of bread? Well, their words, verse 32, uh, when, just when they recognize him, he's gone. <laughs> you think they wanted to ask some questions at that point? <clears throat> but he had other uh, people to minister to, obviously. And he'd done, he'd done what he needed to do here, you see. <clears throat> but they said uh, that their hearts had been burning. 
Do you know what they're talking about? If you're a professing Christian, you know what that means? When they say, did not our hearts burn within us? You ever had that sense? When was the last time? It should be a regular thing, you know? God speaking to you through, through his word here, you know? Well, um, Jesus did what we all need with them. Uh, that verse I quoted earlier, earlier, Romans 12, too, says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. It says, by the renewing of your mind. That's how we get our head screwed on straight. And the way you renew your mind is this way. Through the scripture. You know. And their problem was they took bits and pieces, but not the whole thing. And we need to be careful we don't make that mistake. Okay? It's all or nothing. All of it. I need all of it. Only when I take the word of God in, in its entirety am I going to, as a believer, see life the way it is, understand myself the way I am, understand God the way he is, make right choices, right decisions, face trials, you know, uh, instead of just making it through, glorifying God, you know, in, in trial. So many other things. Instead of being like the disciples are sad, discouraged, confused, you know. So I think that's the application for us from this passage, you know. Uh, I ask you if you love the word of God. You love all of it. That's the key. All of it. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you so much for your word. And we do pray, Lord, that we might be known as people of the book. We think of the Bereans and how it says of them that they were more nobly minded because they sought the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Lord, may that be true of us. May we love your word. We know there is a very strong connection between our relationship with your word and our relationship with you. And we pray that both of them might be strong by your grace. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.